happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up. In darkness, from the ones who walk in light, light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. Ah, this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today. Is the nineteenth of December, two thousand and six. Yes, two thousand and six. And never mind all that. Never mind all that.、Um, it's jingle bells, folks. Yes, Tiny Tim time. The whole bit, turkeys and all of that.、Uh, <laughs> I I don't mind a bit. Yes, just so long as we can. Take the religion out of the whole thing. Yes, take the religion out of the whole thing. Yes, <laughs> a friend of mine sent me a beautiful card here. I'm looking at it, and it's got all of these poems about, you know, beginning again and rebirthing. And oh yes, John Lennon's、uh, song "Imagine," right? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Yes, tell me, people, what is it you plan to do today and tomorrow and with the rest of your wild and precious life? As the poet asks us here, right? Wouldn't it be nice? If we could all start all over again, the fact is we can right this minute. Yes, forget the rest. Just go on from here. I plan to have a、uh, wild and crazy Christmas.、Uh, I went to see Borat finally, and I can heartily recommend it if you need a movie, especially if you have stuffy friends <laughs> that you want to shake up a little bit. I think you should take them to see Borat.、Uh, The guy's name is Baron Cohen, C O H E N. <laughs> He's a、uh, satirist,、um, what the New Yorker calls a squirmist. They also say that he is one of the few British Jews to venture successfully into the comedy of shock. They say that it's both shameful and predictable that when Lenny Bruce. Was invited to appear in London for the second time back in 1963. He had no chance to perform before he was taken to the airport, deported, and banned from ever disturbing the British peace again. Yes, it's enough of that、um, Jewish comedian.、Uh, <laughs> there is a funny piece by Anthony Lane in the New Yorker. Let's see, what's the date on this New Yorker? November the sixth. It's been a while. And it gives the movie a hearty endorsement.、Um, if you need, if you need to, to、uh, find a critic that you trust,、uh, I'm not always with Anthony Lane, but 
he has some nice things to say, and this one he likes. Uh, just one little disclaimer, this is not a movie for the children. I guess I am a stuffed shirt a bit. I think that you can get too bawdy, and kids might get the wrong idea. It is what we used to call coarse, vulgar, very, very low of the people. Anyway, Anthony Lane says, who is Sasha Baron Cohen, C-O-H-E-N? We know he's British. We know he's Jewish. We know he studied history at Cambridge. His cousin Simon is a professor of developmental psychopathology at Cambridge. Oh, dear. It looks like underneath the fun that they are intellectuals. Sasha has entered a no less delicate field. He is a squirmist. I like that. S-Q-U-I-R-M-I-S-T. That is, he makes people squirm. He is a master of socio-ethnophobic comic simulations in which he adopts fictional personae and then marches briskly into the real world with a mission to embarrass its inhabitants. <laughs> Actually, I hadn't really planned on seeing Borat. I figured it was generic, but uh, my friend Jean Shelton, she's an acting teacher, and she said, no, you must go. So we went yesterday, and when it was over, uh, the theater was pretty empty. It was an early Monday afternoon, and a woman sitting many rows in front of us, uh, she was alone there, and she jumped up and she said, okay, well, what's your, what's your opinion? She said, I came alone because I didn't want anybody to influence me. What do you think? And I said, well, obviously, it's a very wholesome picture, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of politically correct types who are going to be appalled at the gross outs, the, um, uh, well, let's just call them the body moments in the picture. Uh, it's strictly the sort of thing you see on HBO, um, uh, let's see. Anyway, let's look at what Anthony Lane has to say. He does a nice uh, spin. He says that uh, Cohen, the comedian, uh, made a uh, coup when he invented a character called Ali G. Now, I've seen the Ali G show, oh, maybe once or twice for ten minutes, and it didn't hook me. I thought it was kind of, oh, kind of standard Goof off, you know, goofy guy in baseball hat, putting people on. And I didn't really get into it. Anyway, in his TV show, he's a would-be rapper from the London suburbs. He inveigles celebrities in England and America to trip themselves up on camera. Now, he realized that under the rules of international tolerance, these celebrities could not be seen to ignore earnest entreaties from a young man in a gold tracksuit and wraparound shades. The definition of a clever stunt is one that tempts no less a personage than Noam Chomsky, or as Ali G in the TV show calls him, calls Noam Chomsky, my main man, Professor Norman Chomsky. Norman, that is, Norman, he gets it wrong. He wants uh, Noam Chomsky to join the ranks of stooges. <laughs> Chomsky remained thoughtful as the sexually bullish Ali inquires of him. How would you like it if I called you 
bilingual. Next up, and more addictive still, is the character of Borat, even I can't pronounce this, Sogdiev, the bony and wire-haired journalist from Kazakhstan. Unlike Ali G, who found only a televised niche, Borat is, as he would boast, becoming huge. Uncontainable on TV, he has swelled into cinemas. His wooing of America aided by the simple trick of filming him in America on a coast-to-coast pilgrimage. Pamela Anderson is his holy grail. <laughs> he sees a picture of Pamela Anderson on TV, and he keeps trying to get across the country to Hollywood. He gets stalled a lot of times. Actually, one of the things that people might find offensive is the way his Kazakhstan moments, uh, it makes his little village back home look kind of like dog patch, you know, uh, kind of a running outhouse. It's it's a little appalling. Maybe the um, Eastern Europeans object to that. Anyway, the resulting film is titled Borat, Cultural Learnings of America for Make-Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. It purports to be a documentary showing Borat lurching gaily from one instructive fiasco to the next. These include a driving lesson... Uh, a meeting of veteran feminists. <laughs> he complains of one woman. He says, I could not concentrate on what this old man was saying. And then he goes to a babble-tongued Pentecostal service, a demure southern dinner at which one of the guests claims that with a little training, Borat could be Americanized. Fat chance. <laughs> I have a footnote here. My problem with this picture was to really decide whether everything in this movie is genuine, that is, if these people were authentically being put on or if some of them had a clue as to what he was up to. I I really had trouble, you know, there's one big scene when he's in front of a rodeo crowd and uh, if that crowd hadn't been prepped, what emerges in that scene is truly shocking, truly funny. I, it may have been the real thing. Anyway, uh, Anthony Lane says that Borat is in part a feat of smuggling. The accepted view is that Ali G, the Ali G phenomenon, was bent on lampooning the piteous efforts of British white boys to sound and act black. But that was not the whole deal. It was also, at a subtler and less mentionable level, mocking marking some of the extremes of black culture itself. Okay, footnote here. Uh, that may be where some of the offense has come from. Uh, actually, I did not find that to be so. When, <laughs> when Borat asks the young, the young black men to show him how to dress, I, I, I thought it was <laughs> the funniest thing I'd ever seen. Anyway, maybe, maybe I didn't get it. Anyway. It's the same with Borat. He, he, uh, on one hand, he's inviting us to feel superior. Uh, he talks about the old world as if it were totally crude. Uh, he arrives in New York and he mistakes the elevator for his hotel room. He pronounces himself quite happy with the accommodations, although 
He says he doesn't want a smaller room. Anyway, he sneaks in a volley of low blows against the America that he claims to revere. Gasp as he incites a Rodeo crowd to applaud his plan that President Bush should, quote, drink the blood of every single man, woman, and child in Iraq. Shudder as he boozes with a batch of true-life college boys. <laughs> they share with him their modest thoughts on women. Ah, <sighs> oh, this defense of Borat as an unwitting scourge of the reactionary, is sound as far as it goes, you know. I guess he's supposed to be unearthing Midwestern beliefs no less parochial than those he left behind in Kazakhstan. You know, it's one of those things, Andre Kudrescu does this um, on a much higher level and with great um, finesse and subtlety and thought, you know. The notion that everybody's crazy, uh, including the gods, yes, Everybody's crazy. It's just a question of uh, style, you know. But this movie goes a little further, yes. Uh, it is equipped to engage multiple targets at once, kind of like the F-15 Eagle. If you can't bear to hear Alan Keyes, whom Borat interviews and who, like most of the participants, has no idea what he's dealing with, if you can't bear to hear Alan Keyes described as a genuine chocolate face, then for pity's sake, stay home. As for the scene in which Borat smooches a blonde woman before introducing her as his sister, the number four prostitute in all of Kazakhstan, it is, like most of the film's lavatorial gags, both daring you to gawk and forcing you to look away. <laughs> Anthony Lane wonders what the cousin of this satirist, uh, Baron Cohen's cousin, the guy who's the uh, uh, professor of developmental psychopathology at Cambridge, you know, what he thinks of the uh, jokes uh, about retards every time, well, uh, Borat is introduced to a man who tells him, tells Borat that he is retired, and of course, Borat gets it all wrong and thinks he means uh, retarded. And that joke goes on and on and on anyway. What is the game that Baron Cohen is playing exactly? He shows mock footage of an annual Kazakh ceremony known as, quote, the running of the Jew, in which children kick a giant egg to bits to stop the Jew chick from being hatched. I guess from one point of view... That's comic, hard to say. Um, I don't know why, but the audience was laughing. <laughs> I think it was because the children were having such a wonderful time. Baron Cohen, yes, is, yes, uh, one of the few Jews allowed to do this sort of thing. Uh, Anthony Lane goes on at great length to make comparisons and to contrast this satirist with other fellows, um, you know, I, I'm not quite sure. He also says that the, uh, uh, the movie lacks all narrative shapeliness, <laughs> but it offers, yes, comfort neither to Baron Cohen's on-screen victims nor to his audience. 
It's as if he were outraged by the business of our being human, as if in laying bare our utter follies, he were just quickening the process by which we already make fools of ourselves. Here's a footnote of mine here. I think the one objectionable scene, the one reason why I would really balk at taking any children to see this, <laughs> is a a nude a nude wrestling fight scene between Borat and his uh manager, the guy who's making the documentary with him, this very fat fellow, and uh buck naked, they run round and round and round and interrupt um uh, Meetings in a hotel is pretty, pretty, pretty gross. Uh, the sight of Borat's face in this guy's bottom is, um, the audience was definitely, uh, howling with laughter, but it's beyond crude, folks. Anyway, Anthony Lane asks, why send these, his characters here to America? And he answers, because America to any filmmaker is where the money is. Also, because <laughs> to the connoisseur of hurt pride, America is where the sore spots are. When Borat laughs at the notion that you can be against cruelty to animals, you can hear at his back the snicker of Baron Cohen as he takes his uh, cleaver to another sacred cow. His task is not so much to insult his fellow Jews or the African-American community as it is to register amazement at a culture that turns race relations into an article of faith that seems to believe against the run of history in legislating our lower, more brutish instincts out of existence. In the mind of such a Baron Cohen, they are here to stay, yes, it's funny, as I watched the movie, I thought of Aristotle and the ancient Greeks. You know how it was. They didn't allow women and children into the comedies because the comedies were gross out, um, scatological um, toilet jokes up the wazoo, you know, the British love uh, water closet humor. And uh, when the great Greek uh, playwrights began to clean up the shows and turn them into... Uh, respectable comedies, you know. Oh, uh, the culture change that has happened to us. You know, the sort of thing. Um, network television doesn't allow anything naughty. Uh, even Monty Python, yes, don't show the naughty bits. <laughs> Never mind. Last week, I left up in the air all my notes and pages on uh, children's books. And all week I've been reading them and I, I don't know whether to be discouraged or, uh, to cheer up. They're, what is it? They're my, my, um, nostalgia trip. I'm completely retro when it comes to children's books. I shuddered and I went to the movies, um, yesterday. I saw that Charlotte's Web is coming and Charlotte will be played by Julia Roberts, oh dear, oh dear, you know, the greatest mother of them all, the spider mother who has the millions of baby spiders, E.B. White's story. Uh, be sure to get a copy of Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little by E.B. White and give them to children you know this Christmas. Uh, uh, even more frightening, I see that Renee Zellweger, a rather smarmy 
smarmy type. Yes, definitely a smarmy actress, although she's done some very good things and is much loved. Uh, she's got her hands on Beatrix Potter. Oh, dear. Yes, I don't know whether I can handle that. I'll try. Uh, she's going to be Beatrix Potter. <laughs> now, looking through the pile of books, I start with the the mother of all bedtime stories. Yes, that's what they call it. The mother of all bedtime stories, Goodnight Moon by Margaret Wise Brown. And if you want to check out an article about that one, uh, I think it's in another New Yorker. What is this one? December the 4th. December the 4th, New Yorker. Critics at large, Goodnight Mush, M-U-S-H, is the title of the article. It's called The Year in Picture Books by Elizabeth Colbert. And it has all kinds of reviews. There's several books I haven't read. And then, of course, I start making a list of the ones they neglected. That beautiful story, the French the French picture book, The Red Balloon. How could they leave out The Red Balloon? It's all about grim death. <laughs> anyway, uh, yes, uh, so many, so many hidden messages in children's books. Uh, it's funny, let me read you what they say about Goodnight Moon, because Goodnight Moon is now as old as Ferdinand, older. No, no, no. It says that the book will turn 60 next year. The official anniversary edition is ready to go. It's $7 from Harper Trophy. I must go and get some good night moons. Uh, Elizabeth Colbert says, uh, returning to it after uh, six or seven dozen of the latest picture books is a bit of a shock because Goodnight Moon, of course, is more restrained, more exacting, and more lyrical than anything written for children today. But in its own quiet way, it is also more brutal. Study it, yes. I think Goodnight Moon jerked me away from all the Victorian picture books that I used to love so much. Uh, at the time that book appeared, Margaret Wise Brown, the author, was 37. She was a well-established children's writer. Among her many acclaimed picture books were The Runaway Bunny and Little Fur Family. Still, she didn't quite fit. She didn't want to fit the role of a beloved children's author. Her real ambition was to write for grown-ups. <laughs> yes, I think of uh, Jules Pfeiffer and... Uh, uh, let's see, James Thurber and William Steig, all of whom wanted to write for grown-ups but wrote brilliant children's books. Anyway, Margaret Wise Brown never married. Her affairs were conducted with members of both sexes. She had no children. When she wasn't making up tales about soft little bunnies, she liked to watch them get ripped to pieces. She was a fan of running to hounds. She was a charter member of an exclusive Long Island hunting club known as the Buckram Beagles. Now, asked about this apparent conflict in an interview with Life magazine, Margaret Wise Brown replied, Well, I don't especially like children either, at least not as a group. I won't let anybody get away with anything just because he is little. <laughs> Reportedly, Brown wrote Goodnight Moon in a single morning. 
That's like Ferdinand the Bull, yes. Forty-five minutes, his wife said it took him to write that down. Apparently, uh, the great children's books strike like lightning. I've been meaning to write one all my life. Maybe I could try. Anyway, the struggle between parent and child that is the explicit subject of so many bedtime stories is, in Goodnight Moon, only implicit. Indeed, there is no parent on the scene. The story begins with the little rabbit drawn with wonderful flatness by Clement Hurd. The rabbit is already in bed. It is seven o'clock. A few pages later, according to the blue clock on the mantelpiece and the yellow clock on the bed table, it is 7.20. Then it is 7.30, then 7.40. When the good nighting begins, it is not clear who is doing the speaking. The moon is rising, yet the light grows dimmer. The clocks tick on, 7.50, 8 o'clock. A parent is bigger than a child, but still a person. He or she can be appealed to, as in Bedtime for Francis, or even tricked, as in Goodnight Gorilla. The arrangement in Goodnight Moon is completely uneven. Time moves forward, and the little bunny doesn't stand a chance. Parent and child are, in this way, brought together on tragic terms. You don't want to go to sleep. I don't want to die, but we both have to. It's the end of Elizabeth Colbert's review. What I found fascinating about Goodnight Moon, which she doesn't mention, is that it's a brilliant, brilliant tool for what we call in the business reading readiness. See, I go for uh, bedtime reading, and I call it, uh, yes, uh, breast reading, like breastfeeding. You know, the children associate the sensual experience of the words uh, with love, and then they learn to love the words without, uh, you know, the atmosphere of school. In Goodnight Moon, there is a mouse. Very interesting, symbolically. Sixty years ago, yes, what a mouse means today, of course, is your computer. Anyway, there's a little mouse, and in each picture... Except that, see, what they do is they show you the picture of the whole, the whole room. The mouse moves around. That picture is repeated throughout the book. And then on the odd pages, a specific item in the room is brought forward and a spotlight is put on it. You know, you see things like the bedroom slippers and the uh, bowl of oatmeal and things like that. You see them one at a time and then you put them back into the whole scene. Now, this teaches uh, children to study, to study the picture, to read the picture. And in each of the pictures of the room as a whole, the mouse has moved around. Very difficult to find in some of the pictures. In the last one, he's looking out the window. But for the longest time, there was a, uh, one of the pictures has the mouse uh, just looking into the fireplace. And my children didn't find that one. Oh, gee, for a dozen readings. But finally, yes, they learned to do that. One would read the book, and then the other would say, and there he is, and find the mouse. Now, what this teaches children to do is to look, to be aware. It's amazing how difficult it is if you ask someone, you know, to describe a situation or a scene. <laughs> they can't do it, you know. Try it sometime. Uh you know that game, what was I wearing, uh, what color are so-and-so's eyes. This book teaches reading readiness, the struggle to 
retain and remember what you have read. Anyway, my list is getting longer and longer and longer. Uh, go to the bookstore, check them out, and best of all, go to the used bookstores. My favorite is Abandoned Planet in the City. I hope it's still open. Open. I haven't been there for years, but children's books used are everywhere. Get yourself copies of Mary Poppins. This has been Jennifer Stone. I hope you have a glorious holiday. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20 for the winter solstice. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. So divide up those in darkness From the ones who walk in light Light them up, boys, your Hi, I'm Dirk Richardson. Inviting you to keep your radio tuned to 94.1 FM and join me in the here and now every Thursday night from 10 p.m. till midnight. Here and now, now, meditating and still I'm suffering, but that's my problem. It's a spontaneous mix of jazz, rock, folk, blues, world music, and free improvisation. It's all and none of the above. The here and now is about music without categories. It's about music's power to ignite your imagination, open your heart, and meet a different world at every step. The emphasis is on new recordings, but you'll hear lots of familiar songs in surprising settings, plus occasional interviews and live performances, and news about upcoming shows and concerts. It all happens immediately following, sometimes tumbling right out of, the Bonnie Simmons Show. The Here and Now, 